working very hard to breathe. Saturations are in the 80s, displayed a lot of oxygen. There's an interesting dynamic that came up in this. I'll give you the story, and Drew, you can maybe lead our audience into some sure. tales of woe. So I have personally had the experience with nitroglycerin, but also other crazy things that I wanted to do as a physician to help my patient, and I have encountered a roadblock. And it's a blameless right roadblock, maybe for safety or for lack of knowledge about something, or it's a process issue or whatever it is. And it can come from every direction, nurses, pharmacists, respiratory therapists, other physicians, you name it. I think nurses sometimes, unfortunately, end up being easy targets, but it's because of the volume of interactions we have with them. So for any nurses out there, thank you for all you do. Nothing is directed at you. But we have these scenarios where you want to give your high dose nitroglycerin and they're like, nope, not gonna do that. Mm -mm. I mean, George is having his pharmacist straight up pass out. Right, right. <laughs> Over the amount of nitroglycerin. So the nitro yeah, right. Which I wonder if that's really a star claw. Like, are you generating business anyway? Another topic. Um, whoops, billable. So, but, but when those things happen, what do you see? And have you all had that like in your, am I the only one? Maybe I'm too crazy. Well, George, we'll start with you. I mean, how, how in that situation when you want to give one to two milligrams? Yeah. So, and it happens almost every time. I mean, it's gotten to the point now where the nurses and the pharmacists are now comfortable with it. And this was predominantly at my old institution. Now that I've been in Texas, because the literature is actually so prominent out there, my pharmacists, they don't even bat an eye anymore. They're like, so how many milligrams are you going to give? One or two? And I'm like, I'm just going to give two this time, or I'm going to give one this time. But when this was first newly coming out, I mean, nobody was comfortable. They would just hand me the bottle and a syringe and a needle and say, all right, if you want to do it, you go ahead and do it. So I'm like, okay. So I think one of the most important things, and this is for everything that we do in medicine, is education is important. And I think when they understand why we're doing it, the pathophysiology for the disease, why this medication is going to work in this high dose, they oftentimes don't really question you after that. And it, it, it gives you a different perception in their eyes as opposed to, oh, this cowboy is just going to come in here and just start throwing medications at people and killing people left and right. They're thinking, oh, okay, well, his approach actually makes a little bit of sense. Maybe this is something that's actually safe to do. And then they become more comfortable with it, which is exactly what happened with this pharmacist is that she initially was like, absolutely not, 100% no. And then we did it and then the patient got better, and then the patient was very quickly off of the non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. So a lot of times, a lot of this starts with education, as opposed to pulling the very frequent card that we love to pull, which is the, I'm the physician card, therefore we shall do as I do. It really gives that kind of dictator role, which I hate, is that we are better than you, we know more than you, therefore you should listen to me and do as I do. And I just hate that. Emergency medicine is a team sport, it's always been a team sport. And so I've never looked at my nurses in a, in a negative way, like they don't know any better. I've never looked at my pharmacist like she doesn't know any better. Again, it's just a, here's my perspective, here's the education behind it. I'll show you the literature behind it. If I'm wrong, I'll show you, but trust me on this. This is something that I know, I've studied, and I can show you how this is gonna work. I had to do this exact same thing just a few weeks ago on a patient that comes in, massive hemoptysis. Working very hard to breathe, saturations are in the 80s, despite a lot of oxygen going into this patient. They're not a good non-invasive positive pressure candidate because there's stuff coming up that we don't want to go back in in this situation. But I had a couple things that were going for me as they come into recess, but I have two good IVs, right? EMS has one, my nurses immediately get another one. 
very clear this patient needs to be intubated, but very clear that this is the true crash airway, right? There is no reserve. This patient is already hypoxic, and they're going to go off that ledge as soon as we induce and paralyze. So I looked at my pharmacist, and I said, you're not going to like this, but we're going to paralyze and then induce. And the initial response was no. Nope. <laughs> and I said, yes, and I need you to trust me, and as soon as we stabilize this patient, I will explain to you why this is the right thing for the patient. But we're gonna do it safely because I have two good IVs, so if we blow the first one, there's a backup plan, and now we are going to push rock, and we are going to flush the rock with Atomidate, and then we will flush all of that with saline, and at the very moment all that is flushed, that tube is going to the throat because I have zero time to wait for my induction agent to kick in, and then the paralytic to kick in. We know that the time of onset for rocuronium is double that of Atomidate, so if you flush your rocuronium with Atomidate, it's all hitting at the same time, and your patient is out. And this was a very quick tube, and the patient dropped their oxygen saturation somewhere into the high 30s, low 40s in 30 seconds, right? And the amount of time it took to get this tube in. And then later explain, you know, here's why, and do all that. And now the pharmacist is on board, right? She's like, well, we can't do this with every intubation. And I don't want to do this with every intubation. But in these specific situations, I need you to come on this journey with me. And they were willing to, because I did exactly what you did, which is explain, I'm going to explain to you why, right? There's a method to my madness, I just don't have time now. I'm gonna have time in 20 minutes to tell you why. Right. I think it always starts with education, right? We all work in the education field, we all know the power behind being able to explain to somebody the reasoning behind why you're doing it. I have, though, encountered a few times in the past when despite education, I was still met with really hard resistance, like just straight up, no, we're not gonna do that, you're wrong, no. and. I would be curious to hear from you how you deal with that particular situation because in the moment, the first time it happened to me, I was pretty flabbergasted. I was like, no, I just gave you all the reasoning. Don't you, don't you understand? <laughs> no, we're still not going to do it. And in the moment, I had to realize, okay, well, my patient still needs my intervention. I now have an individual who is refusing, and that's their right, by the way, it, it, anybody who does healthcare, you have a right to say, no, I'm not comfortable doing that. And I found myself having to then ask the question, well, okay, I respect that. Now, who will? Who is another person who might feel comfortable? And that got into some really interesting social dynamics in my department, because now I have, I go to my charge nurse and I say, hey, floor nurse isn't comfortable doing this can let me explain it all to you. Are you comfortable doing it? And I'm putting my charge nurse in a pretty sticky situation of, well, are they going to back up the bedside nurse's opinion and respect their rights, or are they now going to be able to make the opposite decision? And like I said, it got really messy really quickly. So how do you guys approach the situation where, despite the education, you can't move forward? I think this is a good time for some audience participation, because we've got a lot of tenure out there that are gonna give us some great answers. And I bet Chris would love to get us started. Yeah. Roadblocks. Let's hear your stories. Mm -hmm. Roadblocks are tough because it depends on who specifically. Them. That's Roadblocks in the ER are like snowflakes. They look like they're the same, but the small difference makes all the world to the conversation, to the advancement of management. Those are tough. I don't have a line I can draw in the sand on that one, only because when I have my roadblocks, it was so based on the scenario and different variables. And sometimes if someone says, if a nurse says, perfect example, I don't feel comfortable, you literally have to step back. 
because it's usually in a situation where it's an emergent situation and you don't have the luxury of pulling out the pen paper and Googling the literature and showing, no, this is the Krebs cycle and going through the steps. It's just patience and you gotta take a deep breath. You gotta take a deep breath and sometimes it's worth, after the first no, is just giving a little bit more delivery. Well, hey, this is what's going to work. And then hopefully that works because for me to leave my room and to find a charge nurse or another floor nurse is time. Mm -hmm. But Chris, my license is on the line. <laughs> and I totally, if, if I do this, I can't believe you're going to make me do this. And again, I, I totally appreciate that. And that's when I, as an attending, have to make a decision. Do I want to go back and forth with Drew? Or do no, I want nobody to? wants to do that. Well, the other thing that's important here is I think that a lot of times they just want to be heard. And what I found in some certain circumstances is that they may have had a patient who, you know, maybe they gave nitroglycerin for... ACS or something and the patient dropped their blood pressure and then they went into cardiac arrest and that one thing stuck in their mind that they're like I do not feel comfortable starting a high dose of nitroglycerin for this reason and a lot of times you just hearing that and saying that was a different scenario than what we're in right now but I certainly understand where your concern is oftentimes helps alleviate that they oftentimes just want to feel heard and feel like my opinion is important as well, and here's why I feel the way that I do. 100%, you have to acknowledge it. I mean, all of us still have worked with someone in the hospital that says, we can't do this contrast. This patient is allergic to shrimp. <laughs> we have some roadblocks out there. We've got a roadblock conversation here. Excuse me. I was going to say, this has happened to me a couple times in my career, and I think I've almost been fired twice because of it. And... The best thing I've found to, in the moment is if you have enough time is to preempt the thought process. So most recently was seroidemia pancreatitis. And you know you have to start very high doses of insulin. And so I, I wrote the order and then I immediately found the nurse and I said, you're gonna see an order in about 30 seconds for a very high dose of insulin. This is the reason why. This is what you're gonna do because the patient most likely will become hypoglycemic. I just want you to feel comfortable with it before that kind of comes across. But I also wanted to add, this is a very frustrating part of my career, especially over the last couple of years, is slowly and slowly I feel like we're no longer becoming a team because the education isn't there. So much so, I turn around and the nurses that are in the emergency room are new grads and they don't know ICU drugs. They don't know nitroglycerin. They don't know the normal doses of nitroglycerin. And now you give them something that is not in their textbook, that is not even on the little Pixis or order sheet and it just puts them into a, a world of confusion. I think your approach is actually the way I would approach it too, and it's a really valid approach, which is as opposed to the nurse having that order pop up on their screen and having that gut reaction of like, no way, you've preempted it and explained why. So now when that order pops up on the screen in the EMR, they have an understanding. And that number one, they know that what you put in is correct, as opposed to maybe assuming you click the wrong button, you put the wrong weight in, this is a wrong calculation and you've started that education process. 
and I think we all agree that there's a lot more education in the department that goes on now than it did five, 10 years ago. I mean, it used to be I was just worried about educating residents, now I'm just worried about educating, period. Yeah. But you're doing that, and, and that, that is going to save so much frustration on the back end, no doubt. Chris? I wish I knew the, the solution to when you're in the moment, because I think part of the problem is it's too late. The best thing that I've come up with is what I call the trust, reputation, relationship, paradigm of when you come into the job, when you come into the new shop, whatever, can you build up quickly that trust, that relationship with everyone? So then when you're in that crunch moment, they know, hey, we know them, we will try this. The other piece when you get to the wall is sometimes I've used the, if it were you, if you were the patient, if it was your family member, what would you want done? Sometimes you can break through that way and the other things. And then the other component of it, I would say, is I think it's generational. We didn't see this 25 years ago. We didn't see it 15 years ago, whether that's good or bad. I like to be stopped when I'm making a mistake. Did I write this on the wrong chart, EMR, whatever? On the other hand, it's created a place where now we are stopped at times when we are doing the right thing. One more comment here. I'm going to give you a little bit of a different insight. I was actually an ER nurse for 12 years before I crossed to the dark side and became a physician. <laughs> All of you, when you're standing in a room, you are running your algorithm through your brain, what you're going to be ordering next, or three steps ahead of what you're asking for. So what I do when I have that situation, I'm a queen of high-dose nitroglycerin in the ER. First time I ever ordered 100 mics, they all had a heart attack. But what I found was if I, there's always a tech or somebody standing close by, and I will send them after the nurse that I know has the most experience and is comfortable with sometimes working outside the parameters of the usual. And I will get them in the room right off the bat, and then that way when I start throwing out orders that makes the, all the travel nurses that I'm working with every day look at me like I'm insane, she or he will be the one who's like, oh yeah, she does this and it works. You know, That confidence in that person and also, if I have a nurse, I don't know about you guys, but I come in every day and I've got different people that I've never worked with. I mean, we have that many travel nurses in our department. I don't know how good they are. They don't know how good I am or not. I've found that if they're not comfortable, I just, I'm not going to have this conversation with my critical patient sitting here. I just tell them, okay, that's good. Hand me the stuff, I'll take care of it. Mm -hmm. And that's when I tell them, I was a nurse before I became a doctor, and then I just step into that role and deal with it and take care of the patient. And then after it's all over and done with, we have the educational conversation at the desk. And you will notice people will gravitate toward that desk when you're teaching them about nitroglycerin or you're teaching them about how you want to do a rapid sequence or or the things that you're doing that they didn't understand in the room. I don't feel with the bedside is a time for me to have an educational powwow. I think that's when I just need people that trust me that I'm making the right decision. And if you don't trust me to do that, it's okay. Step back, hand me the stuff, I'll take care of it. So there's a lot of, of 
of things to kind of unwind and, and unravel from here, which I think is, is very important. We all, a lot of us here are training residents at this current moment, and a question that frequently comes up is, so Dr. Willis, I'm trying to make a decision between going into academics or going into the community, and I think I want to go into the community because I'm not going to teach, and I'm like, why do you think that you're never gonna teach again? This is one of the reasons why I have a residence as educators track within our curriculum for conference, is because you as physicians are always going to be teaching, whether it be EMS, whether it be your respiratory therapist, whether it be nurses, whether it be your techs, you are going to teach, even your patients. You know, I teach my patients all the time. Teaching is a necessary tool to be in the position that we're currently in. And I love that you have these teaching sessions with your nurses, and they, they obviously gravitate toward you. And one of the points that was made earlier is that, you know, I just moved to a new shop. That trust relationship is super important, and education is one way to help build that trust relationship with your nursing staff and your pharmacists and your techs is by having these conversations. You know, we'll see an EKG shows ST elevations and we'll say, all right, this person's going to the cath lab. And I'll take the tech who got the EKG and say, you saved this person's life and here's why and show them the EKG and why it looks abnormal. And the next thing you know, they're like, hey, Dr. Willis, I have another one, another STEMI EKG. I caught it. And I'm like, let's get them upstairs, let's get them upstairs. So teaching is a very valuable tool to build that trust relationship. I think one of the things that gives me some hope in this time of you know, tumult is we have so many young nurses and, and inexperience is the thirst to get better and learn. So when we do those teaching sessions, the fact that there is that crowd and they want to know, they don't know. And they oftentimes don't know what they don't know, which is a very dangerous place to be, but, but they're at least hungry to learn. Mm -hmm. And so we'll get back at some point to having an experienced nursing crew and respiratory therapist crew and pharmacist crew. We've just depleted the ranks, but I will say the people around me want to get better. So it gives me hope. Yeah, I have hope that we get those replenished ranks as well. Mm -hmm. so. Hey, I'm an emergency medicine doc at a small community hospital, but I had been working in a small critical access hospital in Western Colorado for a while. And I heard Dr. Levitan, the airway guru, speak at the Rocky Mountain Winter Conference. And he compared managing an airway to Alex Honnold climbing the Yosemite free soloing. And to extend that analogy, you might say there's a lot of ways to climb a mountain. And perhaps with the dawn of patient-centered care as opposed to physician-centered care, as we're acting like a team, we should be thinking about treating the patient and in a way treating the nurse or the tech. And so given that there's a lot of ways to summit, perhaps what we should aim to achieve is such mastery of our skill set that we can pick the correct route that treats the patient and the nurse and the tech all together. Um, and that might be controversial, but I try to preempt those awkward roadblocks by getting to know the habits and behaviors of the nurses I work with, perhaps this nurse with this patient with this pathology deserves sucks and automate. In another scenario, it might be automate and rock your onium. I think that's a really good point to kind of throw into this entire scenario is realizing that we all have the strength to be able to have more than one possible solution oftentimes for what needs to be intervened on on the patient. Sometimes there's the true crash airway, this is the only right option in this moment, we need to go forward with the one right option. But 
gut checking ourselves too and trying to think, okay, well, is there another workaround that would make my team a little bit more comfortable that's going to be just as safe for the patient? And if the answer is yes, then going down that pathway instead of just trying to hammer in on the one thing that you think is mm -hmm. the right answer. Absolutely. One thing that you had asked us earlier and, and one thing that I wanted to share is I do think when you can preempt, like when you know that the wreck is going to happen and you can intervene and stop it, that I think is the ideal way. Occasionally, though, you do wind up in the times where there was no opportunity for advance, advance warning, and, and it's similar to Drew's scenario. And I, over time, have developed the kind of a two-question system that, that I like to use. The wording can be different, but the sentiment is kind of similar to what Drew had. And so what I try and do very quickly, if it's an in the moment and, and it needs to be done, and I agree, I was very blessed to have been a paramedic before, so to my colleague that was a nurse before, thank you for continuing, but you also have a skill set that not everybody has, right? I'm very comfortable with IV pushes, and, and so it doesn't bother me if they're like, well, I don't want to give this, then just hand it to me, I'll give it, I'm fine. But if you've not really done that a lot, it may not be as comfortable for you either. But I've found that the two things that, that bring it back to the human level is if you can make it again about the patient. And so when I have those in the moment difficult things and I'm trying to, to really establish like a quick reminder that we, we really are on the same team, the two questions I will ask are the first is, do you believe that I am doing my very best to help this patient? That's the first question because that's, that's a... That's a fundamental trust question, and if that is not the case, there's really no reason to proceed, right? Because right or wrong, they then believe that they are doing the right thing mm -hmm. for the patient. And so it's a different conversation then. But if they say, yes, I believe you're trying to help the patient. And then the next question, because that's about the scenario, the next question is actually about them, and it goes back to George's point. You don't know what has happened to them before. And so my next question is, do you think I would ever or intentionally ask you to do something that would harm a patient? And then if the answer to that is no, I don't think you would do that, well now we've got these two things together. You believe I'm trying to help them, you don't think I'm trying to get you to harm them. What can we do because I truly believe this needs to be done for the patient? How can we work together to do this? And often when I say how can we work together, they will then tell you what it is they need, right? Like, I, I just don't feel comfortable pushing the drug. I need you to push it. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. I'm not that experienced to give him this drug. How about I'm standing right there with you when you give it? Okay, that'll be fine, right? I'll push it, but you're going to be standing right there. Mm -hmm. Great. Happy to do that. So in the moment, those scenarios can be really, really rough. Well, thank you, everybody. We appreciate your participation and look forward to talking to you next time. Well, thanks for making it all the way to the end of this EM Over Easy episode. If you want to learn more about our show, head on over to emovereasy.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Also, if you live in the greater Chicago area, don't forget, we will be having a live EM Over Easy show, thanks to our friends at Vapotherm, on Wednesday, July 12th at 7 p.m. at Goose Island Brewery. Also, head on over to acop.org to learn more about our official sponsor of the podcast, the American College of Osteopathic Physicians. There you can find out about the upcoming Scientific Assembly in Washington, D.C., August 12th through 15th, where you can see two live shows with your favorite hosts from Emo Easy. Until next time, 
Thanks everybody for checking in and we wish you the best. <laughs>